Over these Sundays in Advent, we'll be studying the birth of Jesus from the beginning of Luke's Gospel. And so this morning, I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles or turn to the scripture reading as it's found in your bulletin. And this morning, we'll be studying together Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Please give your attention to God's word as it is read in your hearing this morning. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. 
And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The grass withers and the flowers of the field fade and fall, but this God's word from Luke chapter 1 endures forever. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, there is a specific challenge that we face in studying parts of your word that are very familiar to us. Lord, it is easy for us to lose that sense of wonder and awe, the way in which your truth initially grasped our hearts and granted us such overwhelming joy and strength. Father, sometimes familiarity makes the power of your word hard to receive. But God, with you, there is nothing truly impossible. And so we ask, Lord, that you would draw near to us with great power and might this morning, even through this portion of Luke's gospel, so that in it we would indeed know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. Father, bless us this morning. And as always, we pray that even in studying the one who would come before Jesus, we would even so learn a great deal about Jesus. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in those first four verses of Luke chapter 1, Luke introduces not only this gospel, but in many ways the fullness of his writings as they continue on in the book of Acts. And Luke here adopts what is a pretty common formula for those who would write persuasive history in that time. And we certainly learn a little bit about Luke's methodology here, the way in which he studiously compiled in a very first-hand way the account of the things that he shares here about the Lord Jesus Christ and then the book of Acts, about the growth of the church in the day of Pentecost onward. But even more importantly, perhaps, for our purposes this morning than a sense of Luke's methodology is the sense of his motivation. Because here in verse 4, he gives the motivation for what he has written. He says to Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was. In calling him excellent, perhaps Luke is, in fact, referring to him as someone who was um, established perhaps even in the ruling class of that day. But regardless of who he was, Theophilus had been taught about the Christian gospel. He had learned a great deal. He had been catechized in the truth regarding Jesus and about the growth of his church. And yet, nonetheless, Luke says here, Theophilus, I want you to have certainty regarding the things you have been taught. And he uses a word here that speaks about perceiving something, about recognizing something, about apprehending and acknowledging something. And so what Luke is saying, his motivation 
is that Theophilus would have this sense of perceiving the truthfulness and importance of the things that he had been taught. Not only that they had happened, and indeed everything happened exactly as Luke would account for it here, even the extraordinary things, even the miraculous things, even the supernatural things, but not only that they did happen, but what they mean, what the importance of them is, and then ultimately how we are all called to respond to the things that we have been taught. Now this is important because as we'll see in a moment, this opening section that we're studying this morning deals with things that we have been taught about in the past. And as we'll see, it really deals with repentance and faith. And uh, our confession of faith this morning dealt with what? It dealt with repentance and faith. These are truths, scriptural truths that we know already. And yet it's so valuable for us this morning to realize that Luke is presenting repentance and faith in such a way that he wants us to perceive these things, to recognize these things, to know with certainty the importance, the absolute vital importance of faith and repentance. Indeed, he wants us to see that these are the very nature of what it is to take hold of God's salvation through his Son. That's our goal this morning to be able to perceive, to recognize how absolutely essential faith and repentance truly are. And Luke will do this for us as we see in these opening verses in such a way that he is describing the fulfillment of God's purposes for redemption in the work of Jesus, God's Son. Uh, There are so many ways in which the opening chapters of Luke so clearly just grab hold of the Old Testament in a variety of ways, sometimes very directly, other times more subtly. But what Luke is showing us here in these opening chapters is that what God is doing through John, who would announce the coming of Jesus, and then Jesus himself, is that he is fulfilling all of the plans and purposes that he had revealed for countless generations earlier that would now find their full expression in his son. John here wants us to see excuse me, Luke wants us to see here, especially in the announcement of John's birth, the reality that God is on the move, that God is active, that God is doing something that in one hand is connected to everything that has come earlier, but now is entering a whole new phase, a whole new stage, a stage of fulfillment, a stage by which all things are coming to pass for the sake of those who would exercise faith and repentance in his son. And we think about just some of the examples here of how God is on the move in a way that fulfills what he had already been doing and bringing it to a new and great stage. Here we're introduced in verse 8 to uh, Zechariah, excuse me, verse 5, Zechariah as one who's a priest and speaking of him as being part of the division of Abijah, of dealing with the altar of incense and the temple, right? All of these things that pertain to the worship of God that is prescribed in the Old Testament. There's a connection, there's continuity with what has come before. Then the fact here that Zechariah exercises this privilege by the casting of lots. And in our study of the book of Esther on Wednesday evening, we recently saw 
the way in which through the casting of a lot, there was a reminder of God's providence, God's superintendence of what was happening, what was unfolding in the life of Esther and Mordecai and all the people of Israel of old. And here by reminding us that Zechariah, this individual, was at that moment chosen by Lot, there is a subtle reminder that God is at work. And then we think here about the person of Gabriel, this angel who appears there in front of the Holy of Holies and delivers his message to Zechariah. And in the book of Daniel, we find that Gabriel is one who is able to impart revelation, one who is able to explain, even to the prophet Daniel, the things that God will bring to pass. The description here of the child who would be born As we find in verse 15, he must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. There's there's an allusion here to the the, uh, category of the Nazarite in the Old Testament. Uh, One who for a period of time was in a very special way set apart to the Lord's service. And during those moments, he was not allowed to drink strong drink. And on the other hand, there's a kind of allusion to Samson. You might remember Samson, uh, who indeed also his mother was not to drink strong drink. And uh, here John is being described as a kind of spiritual Samson, uh, one who is great and mighty, not because of his muscles, but because of his convictions and the force of the message that God had provided. But even in the acknowledgement that Zechariah and Elizabeth did not have a child, there's again a connection with what has gone on earlier on in redemptive history. How many times in the past was it true that that there seemed to be this obstacle to God's plans being fulfilled in the barrenness, the childlessness of a family? Sarah was childless. Rebecca was childless. The wife of Manoah, who would be the mother of Samson, was childless. Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, who became the mother of Samuel, she was childless. And we find here then that even as God provided those children in the past, miraculously so, there's a reminder that God is on the move. And what he's done earlier, he's doing again. But in this case, to an even greater and higher degree. And so that's important this morning because it reminds us as we think about taking hold with certainty of the truths we've been taught about repentance and faith, how essential these things are. These have always been God's way. These have always been the things by which those who walk in covenant with God would have the fullness of his redeeming and gracious work that they would repent of sin and turning to him and that they would trust in his promises, which we now know are yes and amen in Christ. Repentance, faith, essential to salvation, Advent repentance, Advent faith. We learn of these today. So my first call to you this morning is to use the season of Advent to to turn to the Lord your God in repentance. We think here again of what it is that is spoken about John who would be born. 
And we read, beginning in verse 16, that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And the language of turning to the Lord, we find the language of repentance. Now, we notice here that in verse 15, Gabriel describes the child who would be born as being great before the Lord. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, well, what makes John great before the Lord? Because if John is great before the Lord, that gives us some sense as to what God himself values and cherishes ultimately in his people. John is great And we would take hold of those same virtues and traits that would make us, as it were, great in the Lord's eyes as well. And we think of how it is that Jesus, a little bit later on in the book of Luke, will say about John, who did you go into the wilderness to see? Did you go into the wilderness to see a a reed bent by the wind? Oh, no. John was firm. He had, he, had, he had an iron rod for a backbone. He was firm and strong in his convictions. That's one of the things that makes him great before the Lord. And Jesus says, did you go into the wilderness to see someone who was clothed in, in wonderful clothing? He says, no. If you want to go see somebody who's all dolled up, you go to the palaces. John was known for the basic nature of his dress and of his food. One of the reasons he's great is he didn't have attachments to the things of this world. His attachment was to the God who had called him and given him a message to speak. But you know what makes John greatest of all in the Lord's sight? It's what John will say a little bit later on in the third chapter of Luke's gospel. When people were beginning to talk, maybe this one is the Messiah. Maybe this John who's baptizing many. Maybe he is the one we've been waiting for. And John was quick to say, no way. The one who is coming after me, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, is one who is so great that I'm not even eligible to tie the shoelaces of his sandals. The thing that makes John greatest of all is the way in which he deferred always to the glory of Jesus Christ. None of the accolades that he received would he allow to stick to him. He was always about deflecting them, pointing them to the one who would be mighty and great, but also the one who, as he declares, is the Lamb of God to bear, to take away the sin of the world. The mighty, spirit-endowed one, the one who has sacrificed himself For the sake of his people. That's what makes John great. May we be great in the Lord's sight this morning. By being, yes, filled with solid convictions. By not having attachments to the things of this world. But most of all, by making Jesus the one who is our constant testimony and joy. But as we think about the idea here of repentance... Verse 16, that that John had come to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. There's a couple things we need to realize about repentance this morning. The first thing is to realize that this is the way that we prepare for the Lord. Verse 17 summarizes, Gabriel summarizes what John would do to say to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
that it is repentance that makes us ready to receive the holy presence of God. And indeed, we think about what is stated here in verse 17. That as John goes, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, and he will go before him. Him who? He will go before the Lord in the person of his Son to see that the people would be prepared for the presence of Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. Now, when the holidays begin to draw near, we think about all the preparations that we need to make. And I'm sure maybe you've already got a list of all the things that you need to do. And those are wonderful things. You know, I got one of the things off my list yesterday. I put the lights up outside. I have to say, give myself a little bit of credit here. I didn't wait until tomorrow when we're going to be in the middle of a nor'easter or Tuesday when it's going to be snowing or Wednesday when it's, uh, you know, bitterly cold. I actually did it ahead of time. I love the lights. I learned so much about myself putting up the lights. (laughs) Right? But we have all these things that we want to do to prepare. And they're wonderful and they're joyful. But may we make sure this Advent season that we would prepare the way the Bible wants us to prepare, first and foremost, by giving a careful consideration to the character of our lives. And to remember that, yes, Jesus is kind and compassionate. He welcomes sinners into his presence, but he welcomes repentant sinners, those who are sorrowful over their sin, who long to be released from that sin, and who are endeavoring by the work of Jesus in their hearts to walk in new obedience. And so let's make time to prepare this Advent season in repentance for the presence of Jesus. Then the second thing we learn here about repentance is it calls upon us to turn. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And repentance always has this kind of language of turning. And uh, in our confession of faith, we even spoke about repentance in terms of turning from our sin and turning to God. And it's just wonderful language because it reminds us that life is movement, right? Life is a journey. Life is, is, a, is a path that we're on. Life is walking and moving through the seasons and days of the lives that God has provided us. But the, the tragedy is, of course, that there are moments that we are heading in a destination that isn't God himself. We're heading towards things that again may even be good unto themselves, but if we're heading in that direction in such a way that we are neglectful of the presence and power and goodness of God, those things become a trap for our souls. And then of course sometimes the things we're walking in the direction of aren't good unto themselves. They are wrong and evil and wicked and they need to be rejected and forsaken by those who would bear the name of Jesus. And so it is that we're reminded here that we need to turn. And maybe this morning you'd say of your life, you know, there there are parts of my life I'm heading in a direction other than the person of God. I'm heading towards something, someone. And it's not God who is waiting at the end of this path. Oh, may we be those who turn from those things and turn towards the Lord and make the direction and movement of our lives towards him. Then the third thing we learn about repentance here is that it's for the church. 
It's for the church, verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And it really is quite staggering when we stop and think about it that though Luke reminds us in verse 5 that all of this happens in the day of Herod, king of Judea, Herod the Great, about whom it was said that it would be better to be you know, one of Herod's animals than one of his own children because of how ruthless he was towards his own family members, that even though Luke puts these things in the historical context of Herod, he, he doesn't here deal with the sin that is going on out there in the world at large. And, and, and John, as he comes, is going to have a message of turning for the children of Israel who already call God their very own God. And that's a really important thing for us to realize here because repentance means this Advent repentance that this text is calling us to recognize and to perceive. It's something that is for us this morning. We who are seated here, we who are in our homes watching this live stream. Before we worry about what's going on out there, right? before we worry about the sins that are taking place in our community, in our culture, amongst our politicians, within our, the ranks of our businessmen, before we're worried about the things going on out there, this is a call for us to examine very, very carefully What's going on in here and what's going on in here amongst us as those who call God our God? Oh, may we never be so fixated in what someone else is doing, even if it is indeed wicked, that we forget and forsake the discipline to look at ourselves, that God might humble us that God might lead us to repentance. And then we also learn here about repentance, that it pertains to everyday matters of life. Verse 17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now the statement about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children is a little bit enigmatic, but uh, in light of the context, a similarity with what we find in the prophet Malachi, uh, I would lean in the direction of the commentators who say that this seems to be pointing us to the simple reality that when true repentance takes hold, it will manifest itself, uh, among other things, in the everyday matters of life, including the way in which uh, peace and grace reign within a household, within a family. So that whereas fathers might be in their sin inclined to be overbearing or unkind, that here there's a turning of their hearts towards their children as a kind of token for all of those everyday matters of life in which repentance then manifests itself. Now later on in Luke chapter 3, that's exactly what we find. People turn to John and they say, what should we do? You're proclaiming repentance. What should we do? And John's answer is threefold. He says, well, if you've got an extra cloak, give it to somebody who doesn't have anything. If you're a tax collector, don't take more than you should. If you're a soldier, don't extort other people and be content with your pay. <laughs> These are all really pretty ordinary things. Sharing with others in need, 
not coveting, wanting more than you have. Don't steal from somebody. Be honest. Be a person of integrity, right? We think about repentance, and we can think about it in all these abstract kinds of things. It really means the things that God gives us to do moment by moment, day by day, where there's a worldly way, a fleshly way, but there is God's way, a good way, a righteous way, a beneficial way, a way that is pleasing to him and ultimately bears wonderful fruit in our lives. And we can start right there with the family, where, where Gabriel starts. The call for repentance to manifest itself in gentleness and in humility within our own homes. Not keeping a record of wrong. Not treating one another with anger or hostility or bitterness, but showing love and peace and kindness within our own families that God has placed us in. But there's all sorts of other ways. I I think about the kids. Um, uh, We had this uh, video where Steve Green would do scripture songs. And uh, one of them was from Psalm 34. Keep your tongues from evil, keep your tongues. Keep your tongues from evil, keep your tongues. Keep your tongues from evil, keep your tongues. And your lips from speaking lies. And the kids did something very cute in this video. They'd hold onto their tongues and they'd try to sing with holding onto their tongues. And it was, it was very cute and it was very, you know, kind of engaging and all the rest. But there's a wonderful message in that. Because sometimes we need somebody to hold on to our tongues. (laughs) Because they flap and they wiggle and they do all kinds of things they shouldn't. When we think about our finances. Are we giving first and foremost to the Lord? Are we contributing to his work? Are we taking hold of these provisions for ourselves? All sorts of matters. Everyday sorts of things. That's where repentance is manifested. And then the last thing we see is that there comes then with a plea to respond. Plea to respond. We see here in verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And earlier on, the angel had said, many will be filled with joy at his coming. But many is not all. And the language of many is a reminder that this announcement of repentance comes with a plea to take hold of repentance. Simply listening to the call itself is not the same thing as repenting. Even having a momentary sense of guilt or conviction is not the same thing as repenting. There is a plea that this text has. Be part of the many. The many who would find joy even in the message to repent. The many who would turn to the Lord your God. Not being amongst those who do not, but part of those who do. Take hold of the plea this morning and embrace Advent repentance. And then for just a moment, we see here as well, not only teaching about repentance, but also teaching about faith. And my second call to you today would be to use the season of Advent to trust the Lord's mercy in Christ to take away your shame. Beginning in verse 18, Zechariah says, How shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And we do need to understand here that Zechariah excuse me, is at fault. Um, We see that because Gabriel rebukes him, though gently, and there is a consequence. He's unable to speak until these things are fulfilled. But we see Zechariah's fault not to judge him, but rather to identify with him, to realize that we're learning something in Zechariah that can be at times true for us. 
And it's hard to know what Zechariah ultimately doubted here. Did he, doubt, did he doubt God's ability to give them a child? That's probably not the case. Because after all, he had many Old Testament examples that he would have been very familiar with. But probably, more likely, he was doubting God's willingness in this particular case to bless. But for us, that's often the two things that we struggle with. Can God do it? And will God do it? Well, here, of course, through Gabriel, God gives Zechariah many reasons to believe. He says, I am Gabriel. Yes, I know you are an old man. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. Every reason, Zechariah, to believe. God gives us reasons to believe. The fact that there is anything at all, that there is existence as a reason to believe in God. That there is a sustaining of all things and a governing of all things and the constitution of the human person. These are all reasons to believe in God. That God has spoken to the apostles and prophets. That God has given us his written word. And ultimately that God has sent his own son to reveal himself to us. These are reasons to believe in God. At the end of the day, belief is not about the reasons, but about your responsiveness. Will you respond? Will you take hold of the reasons that God has provided to trust in his son and to know that through Jesus, he takes away your shame? Well, Zechariah does not respond well here, but Elizabeth does. Because we find in verse 24 that after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. She is quick to acknowledge that God has looked upon her with grace and mercy in providing this pregnancy to her. And even as Zechariah has been doubtful, Elizabeth here is so clear in her faith that it is God who has done this. That this is not a natural course of events. That this is an intervention by God's hand to give her this pregnancy even as the angel had promised. And so she says here, my reproach has been taken away. And it's been taken away from among the people. This is a token, a reminder of what sin does. Sin brings shame and sin brings fear between us and other people and ultimately between us and God himself. But even as Elizabeth celebrates how God is taking away her reproach, it is a pointer to that way in which through Jesus God takes away our shame. He takes away that instinctive recognition that we have of our inadequacy, of our failings. That instinctive recognition that we have that makes us want to cover ourselves from the Lord's gaze and to cower in the Lord's presence. But he takes away our reproach. And indeed we know that Jesus bore God's reproach in our stead so that we can have boldness and confidence in God's presence. And we close then by recognizing what Elizabeth does here in exercising this faith, is to do so that sees its impact upon the community. And we don't know exactly why she hid herself away these five months, probably so that the dramatic impact of her pregnancy would be immediately evident when she finally made her appearance. So that people would have no choice but to say, you know, something amazing is going on here. And so that she could take that occasion to say, yes, there is. God has looked upon me 
God has been gracious to me. God has taken away my reproach. He has blessed me beyond measure because she wants to have an impact upon the community at large. And I hope she has an impact upon you today. For you know to the fullest extent what God would do for you in taking away your reproach, your shame, your embarrassment, those things that you'd like to hide away from anyone's gaze those things that you love to hide from God himself, which God has seen, but which God has dealt with once and for all through his son. In Jesus, you see, your reproach is taken away. And so Luke wants us to have certainty about the things we've been taught, certainty about how essential repentance and faith in Christ are. May we have that certainty today. And may we live even this Advent with repentance and faith in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, such basic truths, but so important. And God, we do pray that there would be reminders of truths that perhaps have been placed to the side. We want to be reminded of things that are so. But at the same time, God, we don't just want to be reminded in our minds. We want these things to penetrate into our hearts. And we ask that that would be so for each and every one who has participated in this service today. Father, bless us, grant us faith in Jesus and repentance unto life. Grant us these things for your glory and in a way that makes an impact even upon the community where you've placed us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is Comfort, Comfort Ye My People. Won't you please join me in standing as we sing.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.